join this movement, talk about it and, you know, start companies and start companies where you care about your employees, start companies where you can safely talk about these issues, share your story, because once you share a story, it makes it easier for your employees to disclose as well when they go through something. So, you know, mental health, we need more activists, advocates and champions and tackling this issue can be challenging for any entrepreneur or any organization, but it's vital to do it, to grow and build the company that you want. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's guest is Ian Adair. Ian is a nonprofit industry influencer, mental health advocate, TEDx speaker, and recognized expert in leadership, fundraising, and nonprofit management. The author of Stronger Than Stigma, A Call to Action, Stories of Grief, Loss, and Inspiration, Ian is also the executive director of Grace Point Foundation, the philanthropic arm of the Grace Point, which impacts the lives of more than 30,000 individuals each year seeking mental health, medical, and addiction services in Tampa, Florida. Today, Ian and I talk about the challenges of mental health, the importance of self-care, and the role entrepreneurs play in ensuring wellness in their organization. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Ian, thank you for joining me today on InFactor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I know it's a very challenging one talking about mental health, but but today we're at the, you know, nearing the end of it, well, more than past a year of dealing with a global pandemic, which has really taken what was already a problem that is mental health and not necessarily being addressed very well by all of us. And, you know, it's been exacerbated by this time that we've spent. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Now, you're currently the executive director at Grace Point Foundation. So before we dive into some of the things that we're going to be talking about in more depth, can you tell us a little bit about your work there and the mission of Grace Point Foundation, what you do? For sure. Yes, I'm the executive director of the Grace Point Foundation. The foundation is actually the philanthropic arm of Grace Point, which is one of the largest behavioral health organizations in the state of Florida that really pretty much serves as the behavioral health emergency room here in Hillsborough County. I think one of the most interesting things people when they learn a little bit about Grace Point is that we serve more than 30,000 individuals, meaning children and adults each year seeking mental health, addiction, and, and medical services. So we have such a large volume of what we serve that usually people don't know about. And we have a, just a whole breadth of different programs that we have. We have 35 programs, just over 600 employees. And so we have a pretty big footprint here in the community. That's really exciting and interesting. Now, how did you get to this point? You're, I'm, you know, I'm looking at you on Zoom here. You're a young man. So what brought you to this point, this passion and this interest? Well, I think the Zoom camera takes a couple of years off. I'm actually, I'll be 47 years old in a couple of months. 
you know, I'm very passionate about the mission of what we do. I mean, the foundation has the incredible privilege of telling the stories of the work of the people that Grace Point do every single day. And when you talk about crisis behavioral health, you're talking about obviously people who are suffering some of the worst possible things at the, at the worst time in their life. And you got some amazing people to help them through that. So really the mission of the foundation as it supports Grace Point is to raise mental health awareness, which I love talking about mental health. That's why I'm here today. I love any opportunity I can to talk to leaders, students, companies about the importance of mental health awareness, the importance of mental health in the workplace. But I mean, we're a foundation too. So one of our charges is to raise philanthropic support and definitely promote the services and programs of Grace Point. But I'm personally connected to the mission, like several other people who work there for a couple of reasons. One, being that I was a caregiver, my mother and brother suffered from mental illness, both had a suicide attempt between them in their late teens. And as a caregiver, you grow up, you know, taking care of folks and trying to figure out just how you can help them, how you can support them. It's during a time in in the 1980s and the 1990s when still it was hard to talk about. This subject has only gotten a little bit easier to talk about recently. But then I started experiencing my own issues in my early 20s and mid 20s. And so for the last 25 years, I've had my own struggles with depression and anxiety. And so having what we call lived experience, both as a caregiver and somebody who has suffered depression, you know, has me pretty personally tied to the mission of what we do each and every day. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, so many more people suffer from mental illness than we, than we know, right? Mental health challenges than we know. So we walk around and we kind of judge people by what we see on the outside and we don't always know what they've been through, but having gone through it, you can see, have a much closer perspective on that. And and that makes a lot of sense. Now you've become through all of this, an author and a speaker and an advocate for mental health. And you're very passionate about it. We talked about that a little bit before. And you said that sometimes maybe even you get accused of being overly enthusiastic about this very difficult subject that I guess is often hard for a lot of people to talk about. So do you think it's getting easier today to talk about mental health or is this still a big challenge for us? I think it is getting a little bit easier. It's, it's getting easier, unfortunately, for all the wrong reasons. So we look at high profile suicide. So Robin Williams and Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, you know, that, that got mental health, mental health awareness trending on social media and kind of trending in the news cycle. We see things like mass shootings and school shootings, which kind of negatively brings out the aspect of mental health and a lot of misconceptions about mental illness, but at least it it brings it out and we talk about it. But I think if you look at, you know, kind of the onset of social media and the popularity of disclosing just about anything and everything, we've seen younger generations, millennial generation, Generation Z, be much more open to talk about their mental health or, or issues of addiction just because of who they are, which was very difficult for Gen X or baby boomers. So it is getting easier for some people. And I think right now, just from what you see in the news and just from what you see on social media, it's getting easier for people who are in the public eye. So Olympians, professional athletes, performing artists, and we give them what I call a little bit of air cover because they are so scrutinized. You know, they have people following them around. They have people constantly critiquing them. So we give them air cover because we believe, you know, if anybody was doing that to me, we'd probably have some anxiety too, but we don't give that same air cover to everyday people, to retired seniors, 
to students and the working professionals. And I think that's, that's the issue right now that we not transition that air cover to everyday people. And that's why there's still such a hard time talking about this issue. So what you're saying then is that we need to have more stories of, you know, the average people or someone in your neighborhood or someone more relatable. Is that what you're saying? I think we need to hear more stories of lived experience because we can relate to that. You know, my book is basically a book of stories of people in our community, leaders in our community, CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs that are sharing their journey of recovery. They're sharing their path to wellness. They're sharing how mental illness or addiction or profound grief and loss impacted them in some way. And I think the best part about the book is it just isn't just sharing their pain. It's sharing what are they doing to move the conversation forward and how are they being of service to others? And so that's the way we wanted to kind of to address it. I think stories are powerful and I'm glad you mentioned stories because stories really do have the ability to impact us on such a profound level, especially when we feel a strong connection to the storyteller. And I always say when I speak that stories really are the common ground that allow people to communicate and overcome our differences. And we can better understand ourselves and each other through them. Yeah. Well, you and I are on the same page there. That's exactly why I started this podcast. It's really stories about entrepreneurs and stories that can can really help entrepreneurs because I also believe in the power of stories. So I really like that perspective. Now, why do you think, you know, so these stories that you're telling in your book and, and congratulations on your book, Stronger Than Stigma, it's a great accomplishment. And I know a lot of people will find value in that. The stories I think help us relate, but do they also provide us with some hope that there's something better on the other side? And is that another important reason to talk about these these issues? Oh, 100%. I think the the most ironic thing about suffering from mental illness, if you know the statistics, you know that one in five people suffer from a mental health condition in any given year. That's 20% of our population. But when you're the one suffering, and I know this from lived experience, and I know this from interviewing people and talking to people in the industry, you feel like you're the only one suffering. And that's the hardest part about it. And I think, you know, to change how we go about this and to understand why people are still struggling to talk about it, it's that everyday people still fear losing the three things that matter the most in their life. And that's their family, their friends, and their jobs. And, you know, disclosing a mental illness or an addiction issue shouldn't mean giving anything up or losing anyone in our life who should be supporting us. But for so many, that fear is real. And that's why we need to tell more stories. And that's why we need to talk about this and really start looking at how we can better help our friends and our family and how we can better support each other in the workplace. So let's dive into that a little bit more. So does that fear, is that fear grounded in a fear of rejection and a fear that we're flawed? Is that kind of what you see there, that we're flawed and and unfixable and that people will no longer find us acceptable? Well, everything you're describing is actually the definition of stigma and the power that stigma has over people. I think we we hear that word a lot. You see it hashtagged a lot on social media, stop stigma, end stigma, fight stigma. I use the hashtags stronger than stigma and socket to stigma. So we're beating stigma up, but we're not really talking about what it is. You know, to understand mental health, you really have to understand 
stigma and the power it has over people. And just if you just look at like the raw definition of, of what stigma is, stigma erodes the confidence that mental illness is even real. And when you don't even realize it's real, then how can you realize it's treatable? Mental illness is also one of the most treatable illnesses there is out there, but stigma keeps people from getting the treatment that's available. And, you know, one of the kind of, I think, horrific research statistics that you see is, and that that kind of showcases the power of stigma, is that sometimes at the onset of depression or severe anxiety or possible suicide ideation, it takes people eight to 10 years to get help. You and I would never wait eight to 10 years to go to urgent care for a physical ailment. So why are we waiting on average eight to 10 years to get help for a a mental health issue? Yeah, it's a very, it's very challenging and perplexing situation, but I too have dealt with it personally with my own issues and had some periods of anxiety. And I can recall not wanting to share that, but then I can also recall the power of that. And especially as an educator and as a teacher, I had a student one time that that had a panic attack when she was about to give a presentation. And, you know, she left the room. I was able to talk with her and I was able to share with her that I had experienced panic attacks for a while in my life. And it totally turned around her situation because what she saw was somebody who got up every day in front of people to teach and speak. And as you know, many people say they'd rather die than speak publicly. <laughs> so public speaking is, is sometimes rated as one of the most challenging things people do. But what really allowed me to share that story with more confidence and to be more vulnerable was that I saw how much it helped her. And it has helped some of my other students who have dealt with that. And, you know, it's really hard to be vulnerable, isn't it? And yet it's so powerful. Well, I think you touched on an incredible point. When there's people out there that are suffering or people that are going through something like a panic attack or or feeling depression, you don't know who in your class or who on the Zoom call, who you're interacting with every day is battling something. And I just like to tell people all the time that everyone you know is battling something you don't know about. So if you can be anything, be kind. You know, one of the first things that I do when I talk about mental health, because it's such a hard topic to talk about. It's hard to be vulnerable about. It's hard to disclose. You know, I'm someone with lived experience who talks constantly about my experience. And that sometimes puts me in a depressive state because I'm continually to talk about it over and over and over again. But one of the things that I've found, and you might find this too, if you, if you try it or even listening tries it, is every time I talk about mental health, I always, just so the room understands that you're probably more likely in a room of people with a shared experience, is I ask the room to please raise their hand or if they're on Zoom, use their Zoom reaction button with the thumbs up to anybody who's listening or in the audience. If you yourself, someone in your family or someone in your closest inner circle of four to five friends has been impacted in some way by mental illness, addiction, or profound grief and loss, please raise your hand or show me on the Zoom reaction button. And every single time across the board, 95% of the people or more share that they've been impacted in some way. They're not sharing how they've been impacted. I'd never ask that. I just want, I just want everyone in the room to see that they're in a safe place. They're in a place where people have a shared experience. And I want the people who don't raise their hand 
to see how many people this has impacted and for them to be ready for when it might impact them as well. So that's kind of the collective sigh of relief, that deep breath that people take when you have this conversation that I think allows you to dive into it a little bit more because I think for a lot of people, again, mental illness is so internal that when they see that and that's physically represented and manifested in front of them, it changes the conversation and it helps the conversation be a lot more, I would say, just more profound to them when they have it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really powerful. So th- I mentioned earlier on that, you know, we're a little bit past a year of dealing with COVID. How has COVID shaped the conversation about mental health this last year? Oh, tremendous amount. I, I think, you know, we were all told to be socially distant. And I don't think any of us really understood what that meant. And I think in becoming socially distant, we became emotionally distant as well. And you start having more people feel signs of, you know, loneliness and isolation and people are feeling more depressed and anxious. So I think one of the biggest issues that came from COVID was that lack of connectedness. So when you're in quarantine or when you're in lockdown or when you're social distancing and you haven't seen coworkers in months, that lack of connectedness becomes a huge issue. And that's really been the driving factor for how COVID has brought to light, if there's any silver lining here, brought to light the importance of mental health and recovery and wellness and how we need to take care of each other. Yeah, I think I heard something too about some of the statistics about increased attempts at suicide or thoughts of suicide, especially even with young people. They've really increased over this past year. Has has the data kind of shown an increase in mental health issues? And And even maybe more importantly, are people addressing that or are those going sort of, are people, you know, especially during COVID, we kind of didn't go to the doctor because we were afraid. So are people also doing the same thing with mental health or do you, do you see any patterns there? We do see an uptake and an increase in people utilizing mental health services. Now, here's where it gets tricky because we're still kind of winding down the pandemic. It's still going on. And if you go back to what I said previously, sometimes it takes people eight to 10 years before they seek help. So we really aren't going to see the true impact of the pandemic, of social distancing, of everything we've been through the last 14 months, probably for some years to come. We have seen a number of students disclose that they've had more thoughts of suicide. We have seen a number of people take advantage of their EAP programs, their employee assistant programs in their workplace. We have seen an explosion in the number of people that are utilizing mental health services, but there has there has been an increase in people for a number of reasons that have attempted suicide, yes. Mm. Well, it will be very interesting to see, but if there is a silver lining, I'm hoping that this increased awareness of mental health, as you pointed out, is going to lead, you know, lead to a better pathway to address it and to help people and to talk about it. So kudos to you and everybody else who's working on that. So you also talk a lot about the intersection between business leadership and mental health. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? A lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs. And I know that mental health issues are are going to be important for them as they think about that and, and work in that space. 
Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to say a lot as well. You've seen a lot of people, a lot of thought leaders are really redefining what leadership is today. And we're also seeing a lot of research on why people are leaving their jobs. And, and the number one reason why people are leaving their jobs is they don't get along with their manager or they feel they're in a toxic work environment. So obviously this again is pushing mental health to the forefront to understand we have to talk about this more and really redefine what leadership is. I say all the time when I talk to business leaders and when I talk to folks that are starting companies is that leadership today is really more about taking care of the people that are doing the work and it's not just about the work itself. And if we understand that, if we wanna be a leader and we wanna start a business and we wanna create a company culture, really, to cultivate a culture of, of empathy, psychological safety, and wellness requires an incredible amount of consistency and effort on the part of leaders. And so we have to understand that the first thing leaders can do is just normalize conversations about mental health. I mean, that's really the best way to reduce the stigma within the workplace. So I tell leaders all the time, I'm not asking you to be a mental health professional, a therapist, because for a lot of folks that are especially, if you're over the age of 45, kind of Gen X into baby boomer, you had a different style of leadership that was brought on you. And so that's all you saw on your way up to your path to leadership. And there really wasn't any room for taking care of your colleagues or taking care of the people that, that reported to you kind of in that methodology. But now we're seeing that all these folks have gotten to this leadership position, they're now having to, they're being told they have to be retrained and need more education to understand what the majority of the workforce today is asking for. And if 65 to 70% of our workforce today is Gen Z and millennial, and they're asking for their companies to care about their wellness and mental health. They're asking for their companies for mentorship and to have a voice and access to top technology, a flexible work schedule, all those things that were taboo before the pandemic. Then we need to, then leadership needs to realize they need to provide that or recruiting top talent and retaining top talent is going to be a major issue for them moving forward. So, you know, that can be a really tall order to provide all of that, as you, as you know, and especially, you know, for those of us maybe who aren't trained in, in how to do this. So, and it can be a slippery slope, I would think. So what, what happens when you're, when you're in a leadership position and, you know, you're getting the signals, you're understanding that you need to do this, but, but you don't know how, and you don't want to find yourself in a position dealing with a mental health conversation that gets beyond your scope of capability in terms of advising and helping. So what does a leader do? How do you prepare for that? And I think, again, we, I think we, I have to remind leaders when we have this conversation, because that comes up a lot, is, is the goal of understanding and the goal of expressing empathy and the goal of creating a, a workplace that, where people feel psychologically safe isn't about you becoming the professional. It's about you recognizing the signs and steering people to the professional. So one of the best trainings that I've ever taken that's free for almost every place I've ever seen it, it's called mental health first aid training. All that does is prepare you to recognize the signs better. So when when you have that conversation, there's no fear in that conversation. You can see I've recognized signs that your work performance your work productivity is down, your engagement seems low, you don't seem like yourself, you know, what's going on? Let's talk about this. Employees, 
want their managers to express empathy. They want their managers to express concern. This is something we've always talked about. And so when somebody feels like they have the right training and the right knowledge base, and again, that's not at a professional level, it's just on, a, on an educational level, to have that discussion, that can mean a lot to that employee's engagement moving forward. That can mean a lot to that employee staying loyal to that organization and remaining there. So there's lots of things that we can do. And again, I always have to remind people that I'm not asking to be a mental health professional. I'm just asking you to understand what the workforce is asking for today. And if your overall goal is to move your company forward, if your overall goal is to grow, if your overall goal is to make an impact, you have to understand what the employee base is asking for. And sometimes that's, that requires you to get a little more education, a little more training. Yeah, that, well, that makes a lot of sense. And as an educator, I've had years of working with students and sometimes knowing that, you know, it's about listening as much as anything. And then, as you said, directing them to someone that can help. And, you know, in the education space, and I'm thinking also in some corporate environments, sometimes there's a challenge because there can be limited assistance. Like on college campuses, we have tons of mental health issues but we often don't have enough mental health professionals to address all the need. So what if I'm an entrepreneur, say, of a small business, and I'm trying to provide this to my employees? I can't afford necessarily to provide my own in-house assistance, obviously. So what do I do? How do I, how do I prepare myself besides just listening and being empathetic? You know, where do I direct them? What do I do? I think the goal for leaders, first and foremost, should be promoting the acceptance and inclusion of those dealing with a mental health issue. And that can be done a number of ways. And it can be done at little to no cost, but really just improving support systems, spreading awareness when it's available, and, and creating an environment, a safe environment for discussions to take place. I think a lot of times when we look at new initiatives, whether they're wellness initiatives or mental health initiatives, one of the first things that we always try to associate with that is a cost. And, you know, I tell people, organizations, a lot of times there are free to low cost ways to do this, but we also have to look at what's the cost of your employees leaving? What's the cost of low retention? What's the cost of constant retraining? What's the, I mean, you have to look at all these costs. I think organizations, sometimes when we talk about mental health, we only talk about the human to human side of it. But there definitely is an impact to a budget. There is an ROI impact to this when people understand that mental illness is the number one reason for absenteeism and lost productivity in the workplace today. So even if you have to convince certain people in your organization, your business, or just yourself, if you're an entrepreneur, and understanding like, well, where does this fall on my priority list? understanding that has a huge impact on your organization in a number of different ways. And that's the first way you can go about it. And then you can start looking at what are some of those things that I can do to support my employees moving forward. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I know there are a lot of services, a lot of programs available. So I guess one of the first steps is, is to become aware of that and to educate yourself on that. What do I do about my own mental health as an entrepreneur? I mean, I'm a leader. I'm trying to take good care of my employees. That can be stressful. You mentioned being a caregiver. Of course, we're not talking exactly about that. But in some regards, you know, my employees' well-being is very important to me. And 
and I want to do the right thing, but I'm also struggling. What does an entrepreneur who kind of feels alone at the top do? Yeah. And I also want to just go back one second. Being a caregiver today, especially for someone that's experiencing mental illness, that was happening for me by the time I was 12, 13 years old through the time I was like 24. So, you know, that was through college, through high school, through college, through early career. So it used to mean when you were a caregiver, that only meant caring for your elderly parents who might be ill or retired or something going on. But that can span the lifespan now, which is something we need to take into account. But I think when we talk about entrepreneurs, when we talk about solopreneurs, when we talk about people in their own mental health, I always have to remind people, we've thrown around this word for a long time that's been completely watered down, and that's wellness. And wellness has a lot of meanings to it, but we have to understand that we need to take care of ourselves and we need to take self-care seriously. A lot of people talk about self-care, and I think maybe it's been romanticized a little bit in Hollywood or through social media. Self-care doesn't mean hot stone massages and beaches in the Caribbean. I mean, those are all nice things, but self-care can mean walking away from your computer and taking a walk for an hour, watching your favorite show and just laughing for a few minutes. It could mean taking a nap. It can mean canceling some morning meetings to go take care of yourself, go on a hike or a bike ride. It can mean a lot of things. And I think it's been kind of put up there on a pedestal that it's something that's almost unattainable because of a cost associated with it. So I want to remind everybody that self-care has a lot of meanings and we need to take it more seriously. I didn't take my self-care seriously in my 20s. My mother passed away 15 years ago and I never told her I was suffering from depression or anxiety. I never told her I was in therapy because she was going through so much. I feel that as human beings, we tend to rank each other's pain. And if we rank somebody's pain higher than ours, especially someone we know and love and care about or we're taking care of, we don't take care of ourselves. So for the longest time, I didn't take care of myself. And I also want to remind anybody listening, it's called self-care. It's not selfish. And so it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to take care of yourself. And most importantly, and again, I'll reiterate this, if you are suffering or struggling you have to please understand and take it from somebody who knows that you are not alone and there is help out there. You know, what that reminds me of is when you're flying and the steward tells you to put your mask on first. (laughs) You know, I think if I'm understanding you correctly, an entrepreneur and all of us in leadership positions need to put our own mask on, take care of ourselves, and that'll make us more available to listen to others and have that empathy. And, and we don't always do that sometimes, as you pointed out. So that's really important, I think, to think about. There are so many benefits, it sounds like to me to, and I guess I knew this already, but I love the reminding of self-care and of having empathy and helping others take care of themselves. I mean, our productivity, you know, just the general wellness, everything will improve. So there are a lot of benefits of that. You know, today we're, we're really dealing, I guess, with a whole new way of, of working with our employees in companies and, you know, at school and in, in my role, you know, many of my students, I only see on Zoom now, my daughter, my son-in-law, they're both, you know, working remotely now, and it looks like their companies may not be bringing them back. How do leaders check in with their employees that way? How can we give them the empathy and the attention and the care that they need? 
I think we need to understand that just like we used to when our teams were around a conference room or a board or a board table, we used to be able to see people come into work. We used to watch their mannerisms. We used to be able to see, are they coming in late? How do they look when they come in? Do they act tired? How engaged are they? We can still do all of these things on Zoom or any type of video conference to some extent. I tell groups all the time, if you know, when you have your meetings, is everyone turning on their camera? And for a while, we started to do that. Then we started realizing people were looking around our homes and we didn't want them to. So we turned it off. But, you know, what are they doing to help kind of promote that connectedness? So first and foremost, tell people to turn on their cameras. We need to see you. Even if you're wearing a suit or something nice, and if you're wearing flip-flops with it, at least we can see, you know, how you're doing. And you can tell with engagement too. I mean, we need to be able to see not just productivity. I think if we've learned anything from the pandemic, productivity has actually gone up. People are actually working longer without breaks, taking little time off. So sometimes it isn't productivity that we can tell like we used to, but it is engagement. It is kind of, you know, those little things that we notice about our employees that we just have to call out. And I think we have to spend more one-on-one time with our folks. We just do. I mean, you can have all hands meetings, you can have group meetings, team meetings, but we need to start setting those other meetings to see how people were doing. If we know what we're going through is impacting everybody, then you have to go with that understanding that it's impacting everybody. So really check in on your folks, see how people are doing. Did someone in their household, were they furloughed? Did they lose their job? Are they care? Are they a, care, a caregiver for somebody? There's questions we can ask that better get to know our employees to see how we can help them. I think, and kind of lastly is we learned too, through all this, that one thing that was always kind of escaping us organizations or, or entrepreneurs from enacting was using a flexible work schedule to better help and serve their employees. And I tell organizational leaders all the time, I have still yet to read a case study that showed a flexible work schedule bankrupted an organization. And if we know that this is the number one thing people are asking for, and if we've seen through this pandemic that we can actually have this incorporated into our organizations, then we need to continue this through and beyond the pandemic to support our people for whatever they may be going through. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And it, it kind of makes me wonder if you if you're familiar with any research or if you have a perspective on whether there is an ideal kind of mix of remote work and in-person work that can promote mental health. In other words, you know, does full remote work, even though we may find that we're more productive, can it sometimes not be as good for our mental health? On the other hand, having to drive to work and rush hour traffic every day <laughs> and be there a certain number of hours may not be good for our mental health. And so you, you mentioned a mix. Is there any, is there any, do we have any science yet? Or do you have perspectives on whether there's a good mix of that works generally, or is that going to be individual? And it's going to be individual to a certain extent, but there is a lot of research that has come out recently, a few articles that have come out in the last few months that showed that we were all told to go home. We were all told to socially distance. We were all told to do remote work. We didn't know what that was. And by the way, if you're doing remote work or if you're working from home today, it's very, very different than working remote working from home was two years ago. I mean, I'm working from home a majority of the time. My wife's working from home and my son is e-learning. That is not working from home in 2018. So it's a very different, it's a chaotic environment, but because we're working home and because we all know the stigma 
that flexible work schedules and working from home had before, we're working on average three hours a day longer. We're checking notifications at all hours of the night. I can't, every time I ask a group who's checking notifications or email right before they go to bed, almost 100% of the room raises their hand. That was not happening a few years ago. So what we learned ironically was what organizations and companies wouldn't allow us to do work from home, flexible work schedules. They are now seeing the research is proving that productivity is up. People are taking less time off, but we're doing all that maybe at the benefit of the company, but not to the benefit of each other. And that is actually impacting our mental health greatly because we are in this hyper state of alertness. We're not taking time off because what's the first thing anyone asks when you let them know that you're taking time off for going on vacation? Where are you going? It's the first thing they ask. And where are you going if we're in quarantine? Where are you going if we're in lockdown? Where are you going if, you, if your organization has a policy that says, that's fine, you can go somewhere, but when you get back, you have to quarantine for 10 days. Oh, and by the way, you need to have the PTO time to do that. And so we don't have, so it's, it really, you know, I've gotten to a point where I actually sent out a list of reasons for where you're going just to help people get in that mindset they need to go somewhere. I told my supervisor I was going into our guest room. I hadn't been in my guest room in almost a year and a half. <laughs> but, you know, that was going to be a new place for me. And what they needed to understand was I needed time off. And I built up so much time. And I constantly tell folks, again, you have to understand the importance of self-care. You have to understand the importance of looking after your family. You have to understand that now that we've, we've created a work environment at home, when do we flip it back to a work environment? And that's yeah. critically important for our mental health. Yeah, I think a lot of employers are going through lots of questions right now, trying to figure out what they need to do. And it is a balance between productivity and the health and well-being of their employees and keeping the employees they want to keep. It's, there are some really serious questions there, I think. And I, and I think what, and it, probably to get back to your, your original question, I think what we're seeing is a hybrid model is becoming the preferred kind of model. Because organizations are, again, they're looking at this from an ROI point of view. If they can decrease their brick and mortar footprint, well, that's cost savings right there. So if we can have more of a collaborative space to bring people in in a hybrid model or shift work hours in a certain way where people are coming in at different times, again, that's all ROI positive for the organization. Doesn't mean it's, our, it's mental health positive, but we have to understand that with whatever model is chosen, we have to find where we can balance that, again, that eternal struggle of work-life balance that we've been talking about for years. We have to find a way to balance that with our mental health. But I think companies are understanding better the importance of self-care and the importance of investing in their employees' mental health. Yeah. And I'm sure it means we've got to figure out new ways of keeping our eyes open for feelings of isolation and challenges our employees are going through, especially if they're if we can't observe them on a regular basis, which as you pointed out earlier, a lot of mental health can actually be, be observed. And we notice when somebody is, seems to be you know, positive or challenged or dealing with something. So it makes for a very different work environment. So lots of things to learn and look forward to. And hopefully, hopefully you know, we can find some good answers in all of this. You know, a lot of our listeners, as we talked about earlier, are entrepreneurs or students who are interested in starting companies some days. You know, if any of our listeners out there are struggling themselves with mental health or 
or they know someone who is, you know, what's your advice for them? Because I know some of it is about getting that mask on, that self-care. So what do they need to do if they're struggling and maybe need to take some steps? If anyone is struggling out there, I would ask them to please, let's audit what that is. What's going on with you? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's triggering that? Let's kind of look at it and say, you know, what can help? If we're not promoting any self-care, if we're not doing anything to help ourselves with our physical health, what can we do to see if that makes an impact? So I've had a lot of people reach out to me and they said, because of their work environment situation, because of their home environment situation, they were feeling loneliness and isolation. And I said, well, let's start with step one. Are you taking care of yourself? And usually the answer is no. So what can you do right now to take better care of yourself to see if that makes a difference in how you're feeling? See, when someone's struggling from profound grief and loss for any reason, you lost a friend, died because of COVID, you lost someone who died because of suicide, you can eventually and hopefully work your way out through a path to wellness to get better and feel better about it. But when you're struggling with depression, like I was struggling for a long time, just having my friends tell me to go for a run, that wasn't going to do it. Or go to the gym, you'll feel better. I'm like, no, I really, I really think this is deeper than that. And it was, and it took seeking professional help to really put me on that path to wellness. But you know, if anyone is struggling right now, again, can't reiterate it enough, you're not alone. 20% of the population is going through what you're going through right now. That's just the statistics and research. Two, what can you do to better help yourself? And what can you start looking up? You know, there's lots of resources within our communities. What can you do to see what's out there that might be the best for me? Is it going in to talk to somebody on a regular basis? Is it possibly looking at and talking to somebody just every now and then? So you really got to start figuring out what's best for your self-care and yourself, your plan for wellness. And so it's just be proactive and get help. Find someone that you can talk to, find someone that can help you go somewhere. There's no barriers to entry anymore. A majority of what we do for our outpatient therapy is telehealth. So before you had that barrier of deciding you needed to get help, then you had to make an appointment, then you had to actually leave work, and no one wants to explain why they're leaving, and go somewhere and get help. But now you can do that in your car, you can do that while you're at home, working from home, you can do that in a quiet place if, you're, if you are at the office. So the barriers have been eliminated to get help, and that's one of the best things that's come out of this, is that there's no barriers to get help. And so if there's no barriers to get help, I'd encourage anybody that needs it. And I tell people all the time, I have three pieces of advice when you're feeling like you need to get help. It's okay to see a therapist. It's okay to see a therapist. And it's okay to see a therapist. Great advice. And thankfully, there are people like you and many of the others that you work with that are there and available and to help and to listen. So this has been a really great conversation. I think there's so much more to talk about. And so much more that can be and hopefully will be done to help improve the lives of those of us who are who struggle with mental health from time to time in our lives or on a regular basis. But this has been really, really interesting. And I think I know there are many people that will be helped by this conversation. Before we close, I would like to ask you the question I ask all my guests, if there was one piece of advice that you could leave with our listeners today about these topics that we've been talking about, what would it be? I would say 100% that talking about mental health today isn't just a moment. Talking about mental health today is a movement. And I encourage everyone that did raise their hand earlier, that have been impacted by it, that know somebody that struggled, that know somebody in their family that struggled, or you yourself have struggled as well, 
join this movement, talk about it and, you know, start companies and start companies where you care about your employees, start companies where you can safely talk about these issues, share your story, because once you share story, it makes it easier for your employees to disclose as well when they go through something. So, you know, mental health, we need more activists, advocates, and champions and tackling this issue can be challenging for any entrepreneur or any organization, but it's vital to do it, to grow and build the company that you want. Thank you, Ian. Great advice. So where can our listeners find out more about you, your book, what you do, if they're interested? I think think probably the easiest way, I'm very active on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Ian M. Adair, I-A-N-M-A-D-A-I-R. I had to throw in my middle initial because 10 years ago when I got on social media, there was a very famous comedian in Canada that stole my social thunder. <laughs> but I'm good to say now that I have more social equity than he does. So that's where I'm very active on those sites. If you want to look up anything about the Grace Point Foundation, it's just simply gracepointfoundation.org. We are also very active on all social media platforms sharing as much as we can, trying to provide value to anybody who might want to learn more about mental health or who might be struggling themselves. We provide updated posts several times a day, educating as best we can. And I'm extremely excited to be here today because May coming up is Mental Health Awareness Month, and that's the best time to share resources, inspirational stories, testimonials, and to really start trying to create that safe environment wherever you work or wherever, you know, job or or company you're building to let people know that you value this conversation. Thank you, Ian. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.